You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Dinosaur Don Bluth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and today I have an interview with Don Glute. Now, Don is a very interesting person. He has been around for uh, a while and has had his hands in like so much stuff, like in various different capacities. When we start the interview, I'll give a I give a little rundown of kind of all of the different different roles he's played in different industries over the years, and it's just incredible. Uh, The reason why he's on this podcast is because, yes, he has been a writer for comic books as well, from everywhere from Gold Key and DC and everything, including Marvel, a small handful of Marvel comics, and his story is great. And I wanted to talk to him because he wrote a lot of the early issues of What If. And if you've been following on my Facebook page, um, every day I have been doing a live stream of, of what if issues. I pick one what if issue a day. I'm going in order, in chronological order. And I've covered the whole first volume of what if. And uh, and it inspired me to, to reach out to him and give him a call because he did some great issues of what if. And uh, and he also worked on Invaders and Captain America. And we talk, we talk about a lot of this stuff and a lot more. So I hope this is of interest to you because it sure was fun talking to him. Uh, just before we head over to the interview, I just want to plug my my social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, look up Epic Marvel Podcast, and you can also join my Epic Collection group on Facebook, where we talk about all of Marvel's Epic Collection trade paperbacks, and, uh, and yeah, you can also become a patron of uh, our Patreon site at patreon.com slash thunderquack. We are part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. And I think that just about wraps it up for me. So why don't we just move on to the interview with Don Glute. Don, uh, one look at your list of uh, on your resume, and it, there's a surprising a number of like the variety of roles that you've played over the years. Director, writer, actor, musician, stuntman, photographer, like it just, it goes wide and fast. Uh, I want to talk to you today about comic books, which is only a tiny, tiny portion of your incredible career here. (laughs) Uh, So my first question for you is, how far back does your comic book love go? Like, did you read them as a kid? And what did you read? Yeah, when I was a little kid, you know, I didn't read them. I looked at the pictures because I couldn't read yet. But when I was a little kid, like in the late, in the late 1940s, I mostly had Dell comics and some Superman comics. But it was mostly Dell, you know, Tarzan and you know the funny animals and that sort of thing. You know, then I think after that, it was the comic books that DC was putting out: Superman, Jimmy Olsen, and all those, and World's Finest, and Action and Adventure. You know, and um, 
And then, uh, you know, I graduated from that to the horror stuff, you know, the ECs and the, the pre-codes and stuff. And, it, you know, then the, the the Silver Age superheroes from DC and the Marvel, it just it took a progression kind of in that order. But the first things, the earliest things were like the Dell comics, Tarzans and and then Turok after Tarzan. Uh, I, I really liked them. My, my mother liked them, too, because they were wholesome. They had that, that little paragraph at the beginning about how the comics are... Um, there's nothing to offend anyone, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and, <laughs> so that's where I got to start. You obviously have a, a love for dinosaurs uh, based on the varieties yes. of dinosaur-related stuff you've done in, in your career. Uh, does that stem from a lot of these comic books as well? Well, I think, you know, my earliest memory, uh, my earliest in my mind, that I, the earliest imagery in my mind of dinosaurs uh, would go back to the Tarzan comics, uh, going to the Field Museum in Chicago when I was like in kindergarten uh, and seeing fossils on display. Um, and also uh, two other things, which both happened in 1953. One was uh, the Beast in 20,000 Fathoms, the Ray Harryhausen movie, had just come out, and I saw that. And uh, around the, almost exactly, if not exactly the same time, Joe Kubert's tour for, came out. The first issue was called One Million Years Ago. And um, we also had some pictures in the, our whole encyclopedia of dinosaurs. And um, one other thing, there were dinosaurs on the Tom Corbett Space Cadet television series all around the same time. And all these things kind of came together and jump-started my interest in dinosaurs. Nice. And anything prehistoric, really. Right, right. Uh, and so I know that you, early in your career, made a bunch of amateur films. Yeah, it's yeah, many of them starred Marvel and DC superheroes as well. Yeah, I, I made 41 amateur movies over my amateur movie-making phase from 1953 until 1969. In fact, the last one I did was a Spider-Man movie. People say I made the first... Fan, of course, I, you know, we were called amateur movies and home movies back then, but now they're called fan films. So I, somebody said I made, uh, a number of people said I made the first Spider-Man fan film, whether I did or whether, I know there was another one that came out around the same time, made by somebody in New York, which I actually saw at a New York comic book convention in 1973. I don't know if his was made before mine or if mine was made before his, but they're around the same time. Now tell me the I, I watched that Spider-Man film on YouTube and um, the it, it's it's quite good. There's there's a lot to love in there. Um, it's just eleven minutes long, and you have a you have a great costume. How did you make the costume? Uh, my mother made that. She made <laughs> nice. all my old costumes. Oh, and I you know I told her what to do, and you know like the for the mask. Yeah. I drew the patterns for her to cut, and I drew all the webbing on it and everything myself. But she, um, you know, she the, the standard way of making costumes back then, superhero costumes, was, you know, long underwear, a sweat, uh, a, a, a um, not a sweat, yeah, a sweatshirt, and, you know, a lot of dye. And uh, I think I may have been the only one that actually had the webbing under the arms. Yeah. You know, somebody pointed that out, too. Yep, yep, that's right. That's a detail that the live-action uh, costumes don't usually include, for sure. Yeah. And you were the man behind the mask in that movie, right? You played Spider-Man? Yeah, I, I, played, I, I played Spider-Man in that, yeah. You didn't credit yourself in there. I noticed the credit was just to Peter Parker. Well, that, that was an old, that was kind of an in-joke, you know. Uh, when Columbia Pictures made the two Superman serials, 
they didn't give Kirk Allen, who played the part, credit as playing Superman. They had him credited as playing uh, Clark Kent. Oh, there you Because go. they wanted to create the, illu- to create the illusion that that was the re- starring Superman. So they were trying to create the uh, illusion that, especially among little kids, that that was a real Superman in that movie. So I was just doing, you know, kind of a follow-up to that. And was it hot in that costume? I don't remember. It was such a long time <laughs> yeah. ago. I, I, it was I, it was kind of hard to breathe in there, I know that, because there was no ventilation except for the for the eye holes. And so, uh, you know, I would take the mask off between scenes. Now, these films that you did, these amateur films, were probably, you were in your teens, right? Boy, when I was in, when I made the Spider-Man movie, uh, I, was, I had just gotten out of college, so I was... In my very 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 early twenties. See, I didn't have I didn't make that have that costume made to make an amateur movie. I had the costume made because uh, in nineteen sixty seven, I think it was, I was going to the World Science Fiction Convention in Cleveland, Ohio, and, they, and the World Science Fiction Conventions always had a costume contest. So I wanted to go and win the costume win, win the costume contest, which I did. I won first prize. Nice, but. You know, I but I always try to. You know, I like to parlay things and get get more bang for my buck. I I was also going to take a trip to New York because it was so close to Cleveland, and um, and I really I had some friends in in California that we were all getting together, trying to make you know get some kind of a TV project going or something. And I really believed I might be able to get the rights to do a Spider-Man TV pilot. So I. I called up Stan Lee at Marvel, and uh, he said, come on down. You know, I brought the costume in a little attache case, and I showed it to him, and I, I told him some of the people I had involved. One of them was Kirk Allen, who played the Superman, did the Superman serials. And um, he was very, Stan was very gracious, you know, and, you know, but he said, you know, it was just too complicated <laughs> a thing to do. <laughs> at that time, nobody was thinking of doing this any kind of superhero television shows or anything. And, and um, But Sam pointed out that getting the rights to anything was really, really, really difficult. And so and so I had this costume for a couple of years after that, just sitting there in this attache case. And I had a friend named Bill Warren who kept saying, why don't you, you know, you want, why don't you make another movie? I, I don't want to make, I said, I don't want to make any more amateur movies. It's time to move on to make professional movies. And he said, yeah, but you got that costume. The costume was sitting there. And not only did I have the costume, okay, this was 1969. I had just bought a new fire engine red Camaro, okay? So I had a Camaro, yeah. and in those days, I don't know if they still do, but in those days, every year, the model kit companies would come out with the new cars. And I said, you know, I can buy a model kit and paint it to look just like my real car, and I can blow it up. I can blow it up in the movie as a scene, <laughs> yeah. you know, with gasoline and a, and a cherry bomb and everything. And so it was a combination of having the Spider-Man costume and having the model kit that matched up with my car. But there was also one other thing. My friend Bill Warren uh, was working for the city of Los Angeles Park District at the time. And he had a key that opened every gate in Los Angeles, any Los Angeles park, which <laughs> yeah. included the gate to Bronson Canyon, where they shot all those old, you know, suits. That's where, what the Batcave was, you know, the Bronson Canyon. Right. And they shot hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies and serials there. And I said, I no longer have to walk up the hill with all that equipment and cameras and things to get to the cave. I can drive up there through <laughs> the open gate. So the, the key 
the model kit and the car and the costume all came together, and I said, okay, this will be my last movie. And it was. It was my last amateur movie. Wow. And... And an, an, another Spider-Man connection for you here, uh, before we move into the comic books, is your animation writing. You spend a lot of time uh, writing for animation. Yeah, I wrote quite a bit of animation, and even one or two I didn't get credit on for one reason or another. I ghosted for somebody else. But yeah, I, I, I wrote for the uh, the Spider-Man and His Amazing Friend show. But before that, before that, remember the you know the old 1960s show, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Oh, yes. Well, they were reissuing that. Uh, for syndication, and they were short by I don't know how many episodes. They needed so many more episodes, and I got in on that. And I wrote four episodes of that, but we didn't. I don't think we got credit on those. But you can tell the ones I wrote because they're the ones with the crossover stories, you know. And uh, they were more like the comic books instead of like Saturday morning cartoon shows. That and that was in the early eighties. No, that was in the seventies. That was in the seventies. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I wrote the ones with you know with Captain America and Submariner and those. You know, the story editor didn't even know who those characters were when I said, when I said, let's do a Captain America story. Let's let's do a Kazar story. He, he had, because he wasn't a comic book reader or a fan. So uh, I wrote those. <laughs> they're they they're easy to spot because they're different than the other ones. Nice. And uh, what's it like writing for animation? How did you get involved in that? I got involved with animation because when Roy Thomas quit Marvel as editor-in-chief, and the Jim Shooter came in. All of us on the West Coast who were writing Marvel comics, we pretty much got canned. Because as I heard somebody talking, I won't say who, I heard a couple Marvel artists talking, at the, having a conversation at one of the old San Diego comic conventions. And, and I overheard one of them saying, yeah, when Shooter comes in, he's going to clean house. He's going to get rid of everyone on the West Coast. So when, we, when it was pretty obvious we weren't going to get any more work, and Roy was no more in a position to hire any of us, the next logical step was, well, what's going on out here? It was the animation business. And we all fit in really easily because, and in fact, we, we were more adept at writing an, and drawing animation than most of the standard people who were in the business because we knew how to think visually. When you're writing comic books, you have to think visually and also work fast. Mm-hmm. So we fit right in. So I'll tell you, so us getting... You know, let go at Marvel Comics was one of the best things that ever happened to us because the animation business paid a lot more, and they took out taxes and things so you could get unemployment. You know, right. and when your when your dick ran out, and there was health, and you got health policies and all kinds of other things that you couldn't get working for Marvel Comics, <laughs> and it was easier writing. You know, because uh, there was less dialogue to do, and the only problem was it was it wasn't so much fun because. Um, it couldn't be really creative because everything was written like to a bottom uh, denominator uh, network. Uh, you know, you weren't writing for the kids. You were either writing to sell toys, like the Transformers show, yeah. the G.I. Joe show, or you were writing to please the network censors. And censorship was enormous, the things that they wouldn't let you do. And so, uh, you know, all those things taken into consideration, it was... You know, I, I enjoyed it to the extent that it paid very well. But I, but anytime you tried anything really original or really, really creative, you know, it was a, it was like signing your own death warrant because they didn't want you to deviate from the norm, you know. And the, most of the stuff I wrote in animation, I thought was just, you know, I won't say garbage, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't good. There's maybe <laughs> out of all the scripts I wrote, maybe, maybe four, 
five I have any kind of pride in at all, you know. So um, <laughs> that's what TV animation was all about. <laughs> which are some of the ones that you do? You remember which ones you have pride over? Yeah, I, I wrote an episode of Ducktales called "The Duck and the Iron Mask," which yes. I, which I, uh, we, you know, the animation was better. It wasn't that lousy animation we got in most of those shows, and um, that, you know that awful dialogue we had to write. I will destroy you, you know, because <laughs> you couldn't say you couldn't say kill, you know, or you know anything that was going to upset the little kitties. Right. Uh, there was an episode of RoboCop I, I wrote. Um, Called Riot and uh, Rumble in Old Detroit, which, which I, I thought was really good. There's one or two Transformers, two parters, and uh, a couple of the original, you know, those those Spider-Man cartoons that were done before it went network. You know, when we were still adding to the old Ralph Bakshi series, mm-hmm. that um, I, w- I was able to get away with a little bit more because not being network shows, we didn't have the censors to deal with. So um, you know, I could actually show. Jameson smoking a cigar and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Now, what about Spider-Man and his amazing friends? Was that a memorable time for you, writing for that show? Was it a lot of network? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the censorship things were unbelievable. I had a character once say something. I used, He would use the word atomic, and I found out you can't use the word. Saying the word atomic was equivalent to violence. <laughs> I had another character fall into a quicksand pit and get rescued, you know, that's violence. You can't have anybody in a quicksand pit. The frustrating thing about Spider-Man and his amazing friends was the story editor, again, same one I had on the Spider-Man show, was not a comic book fan, and he didn't really understand the, what the characters were all about. He, he looked at it as a comedy show, and Spider-Man was... Uh, Bing Crosby and Iceman was uh, Bob Hope. He looked at them as those ro- really? looked at them as those road pictures, and his big crea- his big input on that show was that obnoxious, embarrassing dog character, Ms. Lion. I mean, right. every time that character put on the screen, I was like, oh, the the guy, the boys that are watching this show are probably going to want to hang me because I. <laughs> but we were told to put that to use that character yeah. as much as we as much as we could, you know? So we had to stick that character in. And, uh, uh, but I, again, I was able to bring the crossovers in, you know, I was able to bring in Captain America and Kazar. That part of it was fun. And, and great, I got to see Stan Lee every time I went, you know, I see Stan about three or four times a week. And, um, and that was always good because he was a great guy, you know, I miss Stan. Uh, tell me a little bit about Stan and your interactions with him. What is he like? Stan Lee in person, to me, was exactly like he was in those bullpen notices he used to put in, you know, Stan Soapbox. (laughs) That's how Stan was, you know. (laughs) And and it's funny because he did the introductions to the Spider Friends show, and uh, so I got to write dialogue for Stan Lee. Nice. Did you find when you were writing those episodes, did the script change much? Because once you hand it off to everybody else, like it has to go through a whole series of people to get down the line before the the, the finished product comes along. Did it did it stay intact? I, I don't remember them changing much at all. If things would change, it might have been. You know, I always like to put character things, make the characters real by giving them a little thing to say on the side or something, you know, a little bit of business. And sometimes those are taken out for time. But I don't recall things ever being, uh, especially at Marvel Productions, we were pretty much given our own free reign. As long as we stayed within the parameters of the show, 
and didn't, you know, violate any of the anti-violence uh, restrictions we had. Uh, and I try to keep the characters true. The only thing that bothered me about Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends show was I couldn't figure out how these three kids who couldn't even afford to buy a hamburger, you know, had this room that could change, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> and so I, so I submitted a plot, and they accepted it. And I explained that actually they saved Tony Stark's life, and as a, as a reward, Tony Stark, using his fortune, built that uh, changing room for him. I guess some, one day when Aunt May was off on a vacation or something. <laughs> right. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Uh, do you have a particular favorite episode of Spider-Man and his amazing friends? Well, they were all pretty much... The, I, I, I enjoyed them all pretty much the same. The, the most challenging one was uh, Stan Lee wanted me to write the origin story of Spider-Man. Okay. You know, it was a network show. And the problem was Uncle Ben gets killed. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, by a burglar. And um, the network was not going to allow it, but the network at the same time wanted the origin of Spider-Man. And Stan held out. He said, no, if unless you... Uh, have Uncle Ben die, uh, we, you're not going to do the, And this went on and on for months. And, you know, it, I like challenges like that because I can figure out what to do. The only problem was I was on hold for like three months, and because while we were hoping to get the go-ahead to do this, the episode at any moment, I was not allowed to write any other episodes, and I couldn't get on the Hulk show, which which was starting up around the same time. But eventually I got to go ahead, and I took the original comic book story that Stanley and Steve Ditko did, mm -hmm. and I incorporated as many panels and as dialogue from the actual comic that I could, and sort of had to expand it. I mean, you know, that wouldn't have filled out a full half-hour episode. But when it got to Uncle Ben... Oh, uh, that was tricky. So I would have, you know, like the the burglar would put his hand in his coat. You didn't know what he was. It was, it was he going to pull a gun out or was he just being Napoleon or was he scratching an itch or what? <laughs> he put his gun in or his hand in. And then when when Peter Parker came home and the cop was waiting outside, it was like, I got bad news for you, son. What's that? Your Uncle Ben, is he? Yes. You know, <laughs> I couldn't say he died. And, um, you know, but I figured the, the people who knew the story and knew the character, there was enough information there to, uh, that's so <laughs> they funny. could fill in the blanks, you know. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's quite something. <laughs> okay. So let's backtrack a little bit and talk about comics, which you, your comic book, your period of writing comic books was in the late seventies. How did that come about in the first place? Well, I, I didn't write a whole lot for Marvel, like, you know, like Len Wein and Jerry Conway and Mar Wolfman did. Again, because we're on the West Coast, and they liked to work with people on the East Coast because they could come in the office and show the work and talk, sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about it, you know? Right. Well, this is in the days, you know, before cell phones and computers and, you know, emails and all that sort of thing. So um, I think... Uh, I, I originally, uh, Marvel wanted to do some articles in their, you know, Monsters Unleashed and Vampire Tales and those magazines about the movies. And because I was here in the movie industry and a lot of my friends were, you know, actors uh, that I could interview and I could get on sets and things, they were hiring me to write, and I, because I knew a lot about those movies, which they didn't, you know, I was hired to write articles. Okay. And then Roy Thomas got the idea, I think it was Roy Thomas got the idea, to do a monster movie magazine, Monsters of the Movies. 
And uh, Jim Harmon was hired, who, who didn't know anything about horror films, really. He was a Western movie fan. I don't know why they went to Jim. But Jim got hired on as editor, and he called me on board to be associate editor or consulting editor or something, and some of the other people that were on the West Coast. And we put that magazine together, and uh, the bullpen in, in uh, New York kept sabotaging it on us, and, and finally it, it, it tanked. But for a while there, it was good and it was fun. And then in 1973, I went to the comic convention in um, New York. And I, one of the reasons I went there is I was trying to get work in the comic book business from DC and, and, and Marvel especially. I was talking to Marv Wolfman and uh, because he had gotten Doug Munch in. And Doug had called, gotten to be friends with Marv, and Doug got into Marvel, and Doug told me, he said, why don't you call Marv? So I called Marv. And Marv said, okay, I'll give you an assignment. And he assigned me to write, to come up with a uh, script for uh, Haunt of Horror, which was their black and white version of Creepy and Eerie. Right. And so I wrote my very first Marvel comic book story for Haunt of Horror. It was called The Ghastly Dummy. It was a, about a mad ventriloquist who makes a ventriloquist dummy out of his wife. It was a pretty gruesome story. And... Um, and then he, uh, and then that magazine got canceled before it ever came out. Oh no! And then Roy Thomas came out to California on a vacation, and decided he wanted to live there and get in the movies and television. And he was just starting up a magazine called Arg, and he said, "Hey, do you want to write a script for Arg?" So I did, and he bought it. So the Arg story, I believe, was my first actual published Marvel comic book uh, story. A little bit after that, Jerry Conway came out from California, and we we were friends. And we I met Jerry in New York, and Jerry came out, and, and um, he was testing the waters out here too to see if he was going to stay. And he wanted to go to Disneyland, or I forgot what it was, but he had a deadline due on and uh, on a Ghostwriter story. And he said, uh, "Do you want to write the dialogue for it?" Um, as Roy would say, would you like to dialogue? And he could say, he, Roy <laughs> turned the word dialogue into a verb. That's what was kind of uh, interesting. But anyway, so Jerry gave me the artwork that was already been penciled. He told me what the basic plot was, and I just wrote the dialogue and the captions and the sound effects, and it worked out all right. So that was my first official Marvel superhero story. And then when Roy Roy Thomas kept getting more involved in movies and television and just having fun out here in California, uh, he was giving me a lot of his workload to do, which in, included Carl and the Invaders and filling issues, you know, of uh, of uh, Thor and various things. And uh, and then uh, he tried me out on uh, a What If, and I wrote a lot of the What If stories. I had, I had a wonderful time writing the What If stories, and. Um, and you know, this one one thing kind of led to another. So that's how I got in with Marvel. And then, of course, when when Shooter came in, it all ended when I went to animation. Let's talk a little bit more about What If, because this is a, a a book or a comic that I'm just reading myself for the first time. And and these early issues that you write are 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 a lot of fun. They're they're quite wonderful, and there's some really good stories in here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, what were what were the instructions you got from Roy when he was saying, "Okay, here's this book. What if?" Roy gave me pretty much free reign on that. He came up with some of the basic premises. I came up with others. Some of them, I can't remember who came up with it. I know um, the 1950s Avengers. Uh, that, that one I had a really good time with. That one I think he came up with just a question: What if the Avengers were formed in the 50s? And I took it from there. 
the one about Daredevil, what if the world knew Daredevil was blind? Mm-hmm. That I know was, was definitely my pitching to him. The, I think the first one that I was given was either what if the Fantastic Four had different powers or what if somebody else had been... I think what if somebody else had been... Yeah, I think the Fantastic Four and maybe the Captain America if he uh, lived beyond World War II or yep. whatever that was. I think those may have been Roy's pitch ideas. Okay. Uh, the one about if somebody else had been bitten by the spider or if Jane Foster had become Thor... Those were not Roy's. I think the, the Thor one is, I think myself and Rick Hoberg came up with that. And with the uh, Spider-Man, I, I can't remember if that was just me or me and Rick, or Rick, me, and Christy Marks. You know, you go back such a long way, you forget. Right. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> sometimes you're at a party or something, and you, know, you had a couple glasses of, you know, a couple tequila sunrises or something, and, hey, what, what, what if <laughs> Spider-Man, you know, was a dog, or, you know, it's something right. like that. And um, the only one that ever got rejected uh, was what I pitched, pitched to Jim's uh, shooter. And that was, what if the thing had never been? And it was basically going to be like, it was basically, uh, it's a wonderful life where something goes wrong and the thing is, you know, complaining and, you know, he's moaning about, you know, if, if only I hadn't become the thing. And the watcher, who's like the equivalent of the angel on in the, it's a wonderful life yeah. shows them what the world has been like if the thing wasn't there and everything goes wrong. <laughs> you know, so that's the only one I think they flat outright got rejected. A couple I came in the pinch hit, like when the Starge and Fury in World War Three or in outer space, whatever yeah. that was, that had already been drawn and I think it was Gary Friedrich who had come up with that plot. Right. But for some reason he couldn't do it. And Roy asked me if I could do it. And hear me, I was not a Sergeant Fury reader, but I had to <laughs> kind of go back and figure out what those characters were all about okay. and um, make some sense out of it. So, you know, so it, it, we were all over the map on those things. But, but I enjoyed doing that book. That was a fun book to do. Uh, did you work in the, the Marvel style that was uh, common at that time when you just kind of do the plot, hand it over to the artist, and then they bring it back and you'd script it? The all the stories I did for Marvel, with the exception of the one I did for Arc that Mike Sikowski illustrated, the Bigfoot story, that was a full script. All the others were Marvel style. Okay. And when I was writing Solomon Kane, <laughs> that was easy. I just I just I had a copy of the uh, paperback of the Robert E. Howard book story collection, and I would just take a ballpoint pen and I would you know mark off paragraphs. And I said, okay, this, is, this will be page three from this paragraph to that paragraph. <laughs> okay. and, and send them off to the artist. Right. And then when I got the book, or when I got the art back, he followed it very well. And then I just, you know, again, I, I like to use as much of the original writer's work as I can if it's an adaptation. When I did those science fiction stories for Unknown Worlds, I tr- and they were adaptations of stories by well-known science fiction writers, I tried to preserve as much of the original work as possible. Um, you mentioned that with, uh, like, for instance, the what-if issue when someone else had become Spider-Man, that you and Rick uh, were came up with the idea together, or maybe you did, you couldn't remember, but what, what was your um, what was your relationship with the artists in that sense? Uh, did you talk over the plots with them a lot? No, I just, I, I just, I just sent out a synopsis, okay. and um, you know, in the synopsis, I would kind of describe a little. My synopsis were, you know, weren't. I mean, 
sometimes Roy Thomas is not this, a full, 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 issue, full issue was on a postcard. Some of Doug Munch's, you know, would go on for, they were like books. Yeah, right. <laughs> they were like prose, prose versions of the stories. Mine were somewhere in between. And if it was important, I would describe like a costume or, or a, a machine or something like that. You know, when I did the Captain America story for, um, where he goes to, uh, Hollywood to supervise the movie, <laughs> the making of the movie serial, uh, you know, I, or the one with the invaders where they're set in 1945 Chicago or 44 Chicago, I forgot what, what year it was, uh, where we used the field museum and Riverview amusement park and all that. I sent photographs and things. Uh, the only other times I would really send a lot of reference to would be if there were dinosaurs and I would, I would send pictures of the way they were supposed to look. And of course the artist almost always ignored the pictures <laughs> and you know, you would get, you get your Tyrannosaurus with three claws and all the, you know, all the usual mistakes that comic book artists made back then yeah. and animation artists made back then. Uh, one of the more fun ones, you already mentioned this one as well, Avengers. What if the Avengers fought evil in the 1950s? And uh, yes. one of the characters in there is 3D Man, a character that you had already contributed to uh, in the pages of Marvel Premiere. Um, and you, you pulled some really obscure characters out of uh, out of history for that book. Were you well familiar with these characters already? It's funny how these things happen. Roy said he wanted me to do the sort of the uh, if the Avengers had formed in the fifties, yeah. but he did not want me to use Submariner, Captain America, or the Human Torch, and I don't remember what the reason was. And those are, to me would have been the logical ones because there were versions of those characters in the fifties. Right? Know? Yeah, exactly. So I had to say, well, who, who are the ones I know off the top of my head? Well, you know, there was Marvel Boy, of course. You know, Venus. You know, and, but I still needed some more. My knowledge of pre-code comic book heroes back then was really limited, but I, I love, I had a big, fairly big collection of the horror comics and some of them. I, so I just started going through the, my collection flipping through. Is there, were there any characters in there that could have made a superhero character if they were slightly interpreted in a different way? And I found the gorilla man character. I found it, the robot character, you know, and that's how those characters came about. They weren't, they were originally just standalone one shot horror characters and uh, the villains too, like, uh, skull face, you know, those are all from the horror comics, right? A couple of the villains. I think there was a character called electro maybe that came yep. from the 19th. I had an issue with the 1950s, a coverless issue with the 1950s captain America comic. And there was a character in there called electro, I think. And, uh, that's where I found him. So, again, it was just sheer luck in some ways, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I used as many, uh, you know, I wanted to use the Yellow Claw. Now you probably couldn't do that. You'd get away with it right. if you considered racist or something. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to use the Yellow Claw as, because, to me, being a continuing character in the 50s for real, and, you know, we get the common communist threat and all that, it just seemed the logical person. And then he had the Jimmy Woo or whatever his name is. Yeah. He, he, there was a logical hero right there. It was all built in, you yeah. know? And so, um, so it, it, it all just sort of fell into place. And we had the 3D man, you know, that, uh, that we were doing. And, uh, that was set in the 50s. And so we just, I just brought them all together. Some of your stories, like when, uh, you did the story when Rick Jones became the Hulk, that one tied into, it referenced a lot of other issues of of Rick Jones's life 
um, as Captain Marvel and everything like this, like, did you have to do a lot of research to make sure that you were kind of fitting in in the right places as your story was going along? At the time I did the Hulk, that Hulk story, the stories I referenced, you know, weren't really that old. I wasn't, I wasn't like going back to the 1940s and the 1950s. Right. And so I, I kind of remembered generally what characters were involved and everything. But the fun part of that, see, I grew up in the 50s. I was a street kid in Chicago, and uh, I knew how hoodlums and JDs talked and everything because I was one of them. And we, <laughs> and so I, I wanted to, I figured if Rick Jones became the Hulk, that's how he would sort of, he would bring some of that over into the Hulk character. And that was really fun. I really had a, a ball doing that. And, yeah. um, and I also want to do one with a happy ending for a change. You know, all of them had, if something goes tragically wrong because things worked out a different way because, you know, somebody stepped on a butterfly or something. And that was a, uh, I had a really good time writing that story. Uh, and the Jane Foster one is another one that really sticks out to me. I think that one, it ended in a nice place. I mean, it was sad and stuff. And it was like, wow, this is this is what something that can shake shake the whole world, uh, having Jane Foster become Thor. Um, did you what what would you say was inspiration for for that or any of these stories? I think that might have started as a joke. Yeah, you know, again at one of these parties or get-togethers, you know, hey, what if, what if, you know, Thor had a sex change or something like that? Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, and uh, and the logical thing was um, Jane Foster. Yeah, somebody else had found the hammer. <laughs> I guess it kind of worked out. It did. I thought it was a it was one of the best ones there. Um, I also really enjoyed this one, uh, Dr. Doom. What if Dr. Doom had become a hero that you did with Fred Keita? That was my last one, the last one. Uh, Shooter edited that one. And, you know, where Roy gave me a lot of leeway, Chris, uh, Stan leeway, I guess you might say. <laughs> Shooter was on the phone with me almost every night talking about that story. And, uh, you know, I mean, he really took it seriously. And that was the last one I ever did, you know, for the last comic book story I ever did for Marvel was that one. Why was Jim calling you so much to, to make changes to your script because he didn't like the way it was or to throw around ideas? Yeah, he added a lot of his own ideas, okay. story ideas and things. And, you know, I realized if I wanted to get the gig and I want to get paid, i got to follow the order. Yeah, so, right, right. So I did. And, uh, you know. Hmm. Well... These what if issues, I think, were really neat, and I think it sets it's your early work that really set the tone for how the book was handled, you know, moving forward. So, yeah, thanks for for uh, contributing there. I, I think this was a lot of these were a lot of fun to read, a lot of fun. Well, my intent was I was writing those. I was not writing those for my my then wife because she hated what if she she couldn't understand it <laughs> yeah. she hadn't read it in the comic. Right. I was writing that for the fans, the fans who had been keeping up with the characters. And so I tried to keep as close as I could to the original story material, not only in dialogue and everything, but, but plot-wise. And, um, you know, I wanted it to, yeah, I wanted it to be a, just, just a, a, a fun read for people who loved those characters and who were familiar with those characters. And, you know, I didn't read a whole lot of them afterwards, so I don't know if everybody had the same attitude I did, but that was my intent. Uh, 
tell me a little bit about um, Invaders. You took over the title, uh, did some fill-in issues, and took over the title for Roy Thomas to the end of the book. Uh, why, why did he yes. step off the book? Well, uh, Roy was getting real busy, and he had film deals going, and he had television deals going, and he had, you know, he enjoyed the California lifestyle. He was going out a lot, you know. Yeah. And he just didn't have time to do them all. And um, he knew I loved those characters, and um, I didn't have the you know, obsessive love for World War II that he had, but... You know, I knew enough about it, and if as long as I didn't get into too much real history, <laughs> and then, then when he said the book's going to be canceled, and the last book is going to be like this two-issue size, giant size annual or whatever, and that really was a lot of fun for me because I grew up in Chicago, so I set it in Chicago. My two favorite places from Chicago were the Field Museum and Riverview Amusement Park, and that's where I set most of the action. The Riverview thing, stuff, I was so concerned about getting right. I had a book about Riverview Park with the pictures of all the rides and everything, and I had a, a fantastic memory of the place. I knew where everything was, where this ride was in association with that ride and yeah. where how distant it was from this one. And I knew all the local legends. You know, one of the legends was that one of the Stratostat cars, I think this is actually true, broke off from its support and flew into the Chicago River. So I brought that into the story. <laughs> yeah. I had, but I, in my case, it didn't accidentally break off. Submariner ripped it off and threw it into the river. Right. And uh, and then the, the parachute was always getting stuck at the top. It wasn't always getting stuck at, stuck at the top. Parachute jump. It was getting stuck up there when the guy who was going up with his girlfriend paid off the operator so they could go up there and you know make out for a few minutes before <laughs> right. the, the thing came down. So I had the parachute jump get stuck up there. I, I, I stuck in Diana Prince and <laughs> Steve Trevor, if you read between the lines, <laughs> in one spot. Oh, in the and, Ferris uh, wheel there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and there was one, I'll tell you, there's another in-joke in there. Um, there's a scene where Uberman, or whatever his name was, one of the super-powered Nazi characters, yeah. was ripping up the railroad tracks in mm. the Chicago Railroad uh, Center, you know? Yeah. And I'm look, when I got the artwork... I'm looking at, I'm looking at that, and boy, that looks familiar. What does that remind me of? And I said, aha! And I went out and I got one of my old issues of Screen Thrills Illustrated. And in one of those issues was a story about the Paramount animated Superman cartoons from 1941. And in there was a photo, a, a reproduction of one of the frames of Superman ripping up the railroad tracks. And the picture was almost a tracing of that original photograph oh. so i said aha he swiped this photo and since it's you know so i i had this nazi superhero saying it's paramount that i wrecked this railroad train <laughs> this railroad track because the, then i had the association of paramount pictures with what he said right. so that was fun there's a lot of in jokes in that uh if you read between the lines i'm in all my stories if you read between the lines you, you find something that the editor didn't catch or that's great. <laughs> you know, now they call those uh, Easter eggs. Right. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's That makes it a lot of fun to, uh, to, to when you stumble across those things. I'm going to remember that. That's, that Paramount joke is funny. Uh, did Roy have any suggestions for the way that Invaders should end since he had been writing it for so long? Or did, oh, did he leave that up no, to you? No, Roy, 
the Roy almost gave me no instructions. The only time, one of the only times I remember him giving me instructions was when I was writing Cull, and Cull was not selling. I don't know if it was because of my writing or because people just didn't like the character or it was too much like Conan or whatever. Anyway, I was anyway I was writing Cull, and I had this grandiose storyline going that I thought was going to go on for about another year. And Roy called me and said, I got bad news for you. Cull has been canceled. You've got to get him on the throne within two issues. Get him back <laughs> on the throne. So we got like, like a status quo. Yeah. So I took my all the things I had planned and kind of squeezed them into two issues. Oh. And I got him back on the throne. <laughs> oh, wow. Does that take a lot of uh, extra thinking for you to like, oh, man, how am I going to tie up all of these loose ends? <laughs> uh, I can't remember. Uh, it, uh, you know... We all have our certain talents and abilities, special abilities we're born with, whether it's music or acting or artwork or mathematics or sports or whatever. One of mine is storytelling, and it's easy for me to come up with stories and solutions to stories. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes somebody will... I remember I was on one of the animation stories. I, I, I forgot what it was, but the villain needed a certain object. Let's say it's a globe. And with this globe, uh, he's going to get some powers that he can conquer the world or whatever. The story editor said, we can't do this story because we already got one with a globe. And I said, well, is the plot okay? And he said, yeah, the plot's fine, but we can't, we, you know, we've got, so we've got to scrap it. I said, don't scrap the story. I'll change the globe into a, you know, a, a sword or something. Yeah. And we can make the same story happen. It'll just be a different a MacGuffin, as Alfred Hitchcock would say. And... So that's easy for me. When I get pushed into a corner and I've got to come up with a different solution immediately, it almost immediately comes. And uh, so I, I find that very easy. When he said, you know, get get him on the throne in two issues, it wasn't really difficult. I, you know, it's been like an afternoon tossing ideas in my head, you know, yeah. probably while doing something else and, and the stories came to me. You had a, a short run on Captain America as well. And I, uh, I'm, yeah. I live in Canada, so it's always neat to see when our, when any superheroes come up to Canada for a little while. And so you, you brought them uh, up to Newfoundland for a little bit. Well, I, I was called in as a write as a, not not as a, replacement writer or anything like that. I was called in as a temporary substitute writer. Again, Roy had just given up the book. Yep. Uh, to, because he was too busy. And, and Steve Gerber was, I think, in line to do it after. But he still had issues to fill, you know, the Roy Thomas era yeah. issues. Yeah. And I came in and, you know, I filled out those issues. I loved writing Captain America. Captain America, you know, Captain America was like Tarzan. Those characters, those two characters are so well thought out, so well developed. At least they were in those days. I don't know how they are now. But and you could take Tarzan or Captain America, put them into a situation and they would pretty much write themselves. You know, you, you just knew what they were going to do to get out of the, the predicament they were in. Once you knew what their limitations were and their abilities were. And and Captain America was like that. And um, I loved writing Captain America. Would that present a problem eventually if if, it, if you were writing the character who would um, who you know so well? Would that become boring after a while? Or would you be able to keep that exciting? And that for me, if I came up with situations that were knew that I hadn't done before, like the one where he goes to Hollywood was, oh, that would give, I would have written that one. I would have paid to write that story. <laughs> <laughs> and and the only thing, the only thing Roy told me on that book when I started, he said, I want, uh, if you can do two things, 
one, in the original story was that Stan wrote for the Avengers, you know, Avengers, what, number four, where was Captain America Returns, mm-hmm. there's some reference he makes to Newfoundland. And that was never followed up on. He had no idea why Stan had referred to Newfoundland. He said, if you want to explain Newfoundland in some way, you know, please do. And I did. I I did a whole story about Captain America being in Newfoundland. And the other thing was the idea that Jack Kirby had brought in where Captain America had super strength. Uh, It had sort of been forgotten after a while. And so if he can make he asked me if I could make some kind of a reference in there that either he still had it or he didn't have it. And I had a fight scene in one of them where Cap says, uh, gee, if I, you know, I could do this a lot faster if I still had my superhuman strength or something uh-huh. like that. So I established that he was back to the regular Captain America, right. who had great strength, you know, preternatural strength, let's say, but it wasn't where he could lift up buildings or anything like that. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. It was nice that uh, you, had, you were kind of in the right place at the right time in terms of Roy getting too busy, because it sounds like you seem to be the natural choice to take on a lot of the stuff that he was dropping. Well, you know, it's really funny you said that, because Jim Harmon, who I mentioned before, being the editor of Monsters of the Movies, used to really complain about me a lot, because I had what he called Don Glute's infernal luck, (laughs) because I was always stumbling into things. And I would be afraid to sometimes tell him I, I got some kind of a, a gig because um, he'd, he'd resent it, you know. But, but one thing you got to understand about me is I am a shameless self-promoter, yeah. and I'm a hustler. I go out there, I network a lot, I meet people, and luck, you know, either good or bad to me, is either taking advantage of or not taking advantage of a serendipitous situation that comes your way. And I... I'm out there enough, except not right now because of this virus thing. I'm out there enough in the world meeting people constantly. And, um, you know, I got, I got in uh, the DC comics because I went to a party. I met Denny O'Neill at a party and Denny and I were standing there in a, in a, a corridor talking. And I told him I was a writer from California. He said, come on down to DC Monday. This was on a Saturday night. Come down Monday morning. At, when I get there. So I got to, to Denny's office just the same time he was re, re, uh, arriving. And we went to his office. And on his office was a stack of manila envelopes, sealed manila envelopes. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, what's, in the, what, what's in those envelopes? And I said, well, I imagine people have been submitting scripts to you. And he said, yeah. He said, these came in just over the weekend. I don't have time to read this. There might be a masterpiece in there, but I don't have time for it. He gave them to the secretary. He said, mail these back. Then he looked at me and he said, Don, what did you bring me? And I handed him the scripts and he bought them. <laughs> Another time, I got into that whole monkeys, um, when I was back in my rock and roll days, my musician days, a friend of mine saw a uh, notice on the musician, Musicians Union bulletin board that said, bass player wanted for for a new band starting up. And he was a bass player. And he called me up and said, I saw this notice. I, I'm not going to bother trying. Why don't you try it? So I went down and I tried. I auditioned. I got, the, I got the gig. I got the job. And lo and behold, the, the band was, and within a few months, was being produced by Michael Nesmith, who was one of the monkeys. Amazing. Well, because I went with it. I, I gave it my best shot. He could have gotten it, maybe. But he didn't even try. Another time, I was, I went down to check my mail. I was living in an apartment building in Hollywood. I was 
20, uh, no, about 22, 23 years old. And I had long hair then, okay? okay. And I went down to check my mail. And as I was check, as I bent over to open my mailbox, a woman walked by along the sidewalk, and she stopped and looked at me, and she said, Oh, are you an actor? I said, no, I'm a musician. And she said, um, are you it's between 17 and 19 years old? Are, are you, I said, no, I'm 23 or 24. She said, uh, I'm, they're casting a TV commercial uh, in an hour. Come to this address, <laughs> tell them you're 20, and uh, use my name, I'm the agent. I went down there, and no professional acting experience, you know? Yep. I, I, I went down there, and there's a long line of, People, young guys, about 17, 18, 19 years old, all with long hair with their mothers there, you know, their stage mother, and they're all sitting there reading scripts, studying scripts. And I didn't. I just went in there. It turned out to be a, a Breck hair commercial, hair shampoo commercial, with Dick Clark. Remember Dick Clark? Yes, yes. That they were going to run an American bandstand. Wow. So I, I did the audition. I got the, the commercial. It ran for almost, for about a year on American Bandstand on network television. I had lines <laughs> in it, yeah. and I lived off of that one commercial for one year. This kind of thing happens to me all the time. I go somewhere, I bump into somebody, we start a conversation, and boy, before you know it, I've got some, some kind of a job that all my friends want all of a sudden, you know? <laughs> and, um, and that's how it happened. And, I happened to be, I, and luckily I knew Roy because I was, you know, from the old fandom days, you know, we knew each other from, he came to Chicago once, and and we hung out, and, um, and so he knew who I was, and we were good friends, and um, so when there was an opening, he just thought of me. He was out there, we were both in California, we were hanging out together, and he knew my abilities as a writer from other things I was doing, and, um, you know, it just, it just happened. It's incredible. <laughs> Well, is there anything that you would like to to tell my listeners uh, about what you're currently, what you want to currently promote? I guess uh, what are, what are your projects right? I mean, I know that you're not uh, actively out there because of uh, coronavirus and such, but there, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Well, my life hasn't changed much with the virus, except for going out to like the supermarket and the post office and bank and you know those kind of things, but. Um, I, I'm basically right now, if people really want to see what I'm doing, they should go to my website, which is my name, DonaldFGlue.com, or my uh, film company uh, website, which is PecosBorn.com, P-E-C-O-S-B-O-R-N.com. I'm basically doing um, two things, I'm directing and producing movies. I have a production company called uh, Pecosborn Productions. We've done two movies since we started. One is called Dances with Werewolves, and one is called Tales of Frankenstein, which just won last year, uh, in 2019, won the Rondo Award for Best uh, Independent Movie of that year. Oh, great. And uh, I'm, I was supposed to be directing a movie as we speak, but because of the virus, everything's been put on hold for I don't know how long. And I'm still writing comic books. I wrote one day. I wrote a script today, mostly for the Creeps magazine, and a new magazine that they're putting out called Vampirus Carmilla, and I've written probably about 200 scripts that they have on inventory. Uh, and, you know, so long after I've assumed room temperature, so to speak, uh, they can still be publishing stories of mine for the next five, ten years, I guess. Wow. 
and my musical career was sort of jump starting. <laughs> I, uh, I can't give any details on yet that because, but some of my old recordings have been released. They're on CDs. You could just Google me on Amazon or somewhere, and a lot of things will come up. So I'm really active. I don't want you. I'm, I don't want to rest on my past laurels, and you know, just say, "Well, I'm the guy who wrote." You know the invaders or whatever. That was like what forty years ago or yeah, something. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing I'm doing things now. Uh, I'm probably busier now than I've ever been. I see a lot of my contemporaries who kind of threw in the towel years ago. See, there was the thing in the comic book business and the animation and just Hollywood in general uh, called age bias. And once you reach a certain age, and it's not too high, it's like in the thirties, they don't want to use you anymore. They want to bring in young people, new fresh ideas. So most people, when they get phased out, they don't pursue it. They don't try other things. They don't, you know, you said I do a lot of things. Well, luckily, if one thing doesn't work out, I can do something else. If it's not music, it's comic, or writing a novel, or Mm -hmm. or making a movie, or, you know, whatever. And a lot of people don't don't do that. They just sort of give up. And I've never given up. You know, when I give up, you know, I'm way beyond retirement age, and, People say, when are you going to retire? I said, when I get a flat, a flat on the freeway, and I have to call the well, <laughs> retire for me. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I want to die working. Yeah. I want to die between the words action and cut <laughs> on a movie set. That's, that's where I want to go. And I uh, hope somebody will be able to finish the movie. Right. Um, so that, that, that's, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm busy. I like to be busy. And now I'm learning sign language, which takes up another couple hours every day during this uh, virus situation. Wow. And so um, I wish I had more hours. Incredible. Well, I thank you for taking some time out to chat with us then. This was uh, this was really great. I had a great time talking about this and, and, uh, and yeah. animation and comics, and it was just a lot of fun. So thank you for this, Donald. And I, I had fun, too, because most people talk about, talk about the same things all the time when they interview me, and, and it almost becomes like, you know, listen to a recording, you know, like Disneyland, great moments with Mr. Lincoln, where he <laughs> right. says the same thing every performance. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to talk about other things, you know. Uh, and comic books, I don't get asked about a whole lot, you know, and um, it was refreshing. Well, that's good. I'm glad. I, I like to be able to ask those questions that haven't been heard. So I'm glad that we that you had a good time, too. Oh, boy. Yeah, and especially with someone who's been around for, for so long doing these things, I'm sure you've been inter- interviewed so many times, Then this is like old hat oh, for you. Oh, yeah. So yeah. This... <laughs> yeah. Glad I found a few interesting questions for you then. Okay. okay. Talk to you later. Yeah. Then. Have a good and evening. Stay, stay healthy with this whole thing going on, you know? Thank you. You too. Absolutely. Yep. Take care. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.